I might mention something about the, uh, additionally about the cradle roll. Uh, when we mention about assisting, that doesn't uh, mean assisting as a, uh, as a teacher as such, but a silent helper. And uh, even our, uh, some of our older ladies who are still spry enough to chase babies could, uh, could uh, help out in that, uh, in that regard. If you're physically able to uh, change a diaper and uh, help out in that regard, that's kind of what the silent helper is all about. So you don't have to be able to teach to be able to assist in the cradle roll class. So uh, keep that in mind, and uh, if you are... Um, physically able and willing to help out in that regard as a silent helper, then please let Janice know. We're excited about the beginning of the class. I mean, Janice has been getting all this stuff together, and we are real excited. I have to tell you something, though. She related about Courtney, our daughter at Eastside in Maryville, teaches the cradle roll there, and part of it is they use fruit, fake fruit, I guess, obviously, uh, apple and banana, and they show the baby the banana, and she does a little tickle, tickle, tickle with the banana, and then, of course, talking about God making the fruit and uh, so forth. And uh, one of the babies and her mother were in the grocery store, and the mother with the cart passed by the produce department, and there were the bananas, and the little baby said, tickle, 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 tickle. <laughs> so uh, they, uh, they do get it. <laughs> they do get it <laughs> at a very early age. So uh, we're, uh, we're looking forward to the, uh, to the beginning of, uh, of the Cradle Row uh, class. We're delighted to have you with us tonight. If you're visiting with us, then truly you're our honored guest. We are about to wind up our study of Second Peter. We are in uh, chapter 3 of uh, 2 Peter. Uh, we'll just simply go back to verses 8 and 9 briefly to uh, uh, review those verses and begin with our uh, uh, new material in verse uh, 10. But just to uh, gain the context a little more fully, remember that after Peter had talked about the fact that some would come as uh, scoffers, in the last days, saying, where is the promise of his coming, that everything continues as it always has. And, of course, that's a, that's a false uh, statement because everything hasn't continued as it always uh, has. Uniformitarianism is not uh, uh, valid, not provable. Catastrophism is uh, certainly provable and valid, and the worldwide flood is proof of it. But there have been other catastrophes that have uh, occurred at uh, times which clearly show that all things have not continued as they always have and that the present is not the key to the past because things haven't always been the same. And Peter points that out as he reminds uh, his readers about the, uh, the flood and the willful forgetfulness. Verse 5, you remember that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water by which that the world that then existed perished, being flooded with uh, water. And then verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, they're held together by, by the word, uh, the word of God are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And then uh, verse 8, verses 8 and 9, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's where we concluded our study last time, remembering that uh, we said the Lord didn't say, uh, or the Peter didn't say that one day equals a thousand years with God. Uh, that's not a formula that he is expressing here. He's simply expressing a principle that we need not forget, and that is that God doesn't reckon time as man reckons time. He's not giving a formula that every day that passes, that's literally a thousand days with God. Well, certainly not. That's not what he is uh, expressing as we talked about last time. But that God doesn't reckon time as we do. And, uh, and that besides this, uh, God is long-suffering toward us. That's the second point he makes here. First of all, God doesn't reckon time as we do. Secondly, God is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he's giving opportunity, ample opportunity, and furnishing uh, more than ample evidence for us to know that he exists, to know that this book I hold in my hand is from him, that it is his inspired word, and that we must bring our hearts and minds into compliance and our lives into compliance with that word. Peter will write more about that. Uh, in just a few verses as we'll get to them as we look at verses uh, 10 through 13 uh, tonight. So God's desire is that all should come to repentance. Remember 1 Timothy 2, uh, the apostle uh, Paul there says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, who would have all men, or as the New King James says, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's desire, the dream of God, if you will, is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so God is long-suffering. He's not willing or desirous that any should perish. He wants all to be saved, all to come to repentance. But that's the key, to be saved. And we talked about that as a part of the lesson on forgiveness this morning, forgiving without grudging. We must come to repentance in order to obtain that salvation, to obtain that forgiveness. Now in verse 10, Peter continues, But... Now, while God is long-suffering, and while his desire is that all be saved, things are not going to always continue as they now are. The day of the Lord is coming. This is an emphatic statement here. The phrase, will come, is in an emphatic position in the original here, saying, absolutely certain is the coming of that day of the Lord. And that expression, the day of the Lord, is an expression that is used quite often in Scripture, not always in reference to the final uh, judgment or the last day. But it is used quite often, especially in the Old Testament, as a day uh, or a time in which God is bringing judgment upon His people. It is a day of God's judgment, and it is used that way at various times and in various Scriptures uh, in the Old Testament. But here, it is very clear from the context that we're not talking about a day of trial. We're not talking about a, a day before the final day. We're talking about the final day. We're talking here, Peter is writing about the day of the Lord, that final day when the Lord comes again. And notice it will come, or he will come, the day will come as a what? As a thief in the night. You know, that's a statement in and of itself. That one statement should have, should have eliminated all of the predictions, all of the speculation, 
all of the settings of various times for the second coming of Christ that men over the years, going way back in time, have tried to, have tried to determine and tell us for, uh, that that day was coming. You have William Miller. Uh, you have uh, so many even in recent times. You have uh, Hal Lindsey and the late great planet Earth. Uh, you have this 80-plus-year-old uh, uh, man, and I can't think of his name now, who uh, a year or two ago was saying, what, October 11th of uh, 2011 or something like that was going to be uh, the end of time. Have you heard anything about him, by the way, lately? I haven't even heard. Like I said, I can't remember his name. Uh, but I do know the earth is still continuing, and yet his prediction uh, did not come to pass. Why? Because the Scripture clearly says that day, the day that so many have erroneously predicted was coming at a specific time, a specific day, in a specific year, those times have come and gone, and many of the predictors themselves have come and gone, but the day of the Lord has not come. Why? Because it is not a predictable day. It's coming as a thief in the night, and as we have often said, as Jesus uses that illustration back in Matthew 24, Peter, no doubt, had those uh, words of Jesus in mind as he, by inspiration, penned these words here. That that day, of that day and hour, no one knows, Jesus said in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 36. No one knows. At that time, only the Father in heaven uh, knew when that day would be. Of that day, that is the final day. And so the illustration of a thief in the night is an apt illustration that we can all understand and appreciate. Because, as we have often said, a thief does not call you at 8 o'clock on a given night and say, I just wanted to make sure you understand and appreciate the fact that I'll be there about, oh, probably 2 in the morning. You'll be asleep, but I'll try to be as quiet as possible, but I am coming because I'm going to rob you uh, in the wee hours of the morning. Well, of course a thief doesn't. Uh, do that. He doesn't give warning. And that's the point of the illustration. The Lord's coming will be as a thief in the night. And therefore it behooves us, obviously, to be prepared because we do not know the day nor the hour in which the Lord will come. But what is going to happen? And this is a very significant point here that Peter makes. Here's one of the few times in Scripture where we have a description of the events of the last Day. And I want you to take notice of what is obviously missing from this description. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Both the works, or the earth and the works that are in it, will be burned up. Uh, what's missing from this description of the last day, of the final time? Well, it, does Peter discuss anything here about a thousand-year reign of Christ? Does he discuss anything about the saints being raptured and being with the Lord for seven uh, years and then coming back uh, after that seven-year period? Where is the discussion of all of that that so permeates the religious thinking in our world today. Don't you think that since Peter here is describing by inspiration what's going to take place when the Lord comes again, that if indeed the Bible had anything to say or taught anything along the lines of a rapture, along the lines of a thousand-year reign, along the lines of any of that, 
that this would have been the most opportune time for Peter to have included that in this description? Why is it not here? Surely he would have included it in light of what so many denominational preachers tell us is going to happen with the rapture and the thousand-year reign, the return of the Jews to Palestine, the rising again of the Roman Empire, all of those things, the reinstitution of the law of Moses, the law has to be reinstated. That's significant. That's significant. (laughs) That's highly significant and quite involved, isn't it? And yet Peter, Peter was oblivious to it. Or was he? Well, of course he wasn't. He didn't mention it because it's not in Scripture and it is not a part of the Lord's plan. The only thing we can read in Scripture in the few times where these events are described is that the Lord is coming. We, the saints, will meet him in the air and in that way, thus we shall always be with the Lord. Those are Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and, and following, where he was writing to correct the misapprehension that some of the early Christians had about their dead loved ones. They died. They were thinking the Lord was coming back immediately. Their loved ones died, and so they thought their loved ones were going to lose their reward. And Paul said, no, when the Lord comes again, they'll be raised, and then those of us who are alive together with them shall be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here is a significant statement. And thus, or in this manner, we shall always be with the Lord. Where? In the air not on the earth. It's going to be hard to live on an earth that has melted with fervent heat. It's going to be hard to be comfortable on an earth where that earth has passed away with a great noise and the elements or those things that comprise the earth have melted with fervent heat. And yet that's exactly what's going to happen. Where is the millennial reign of Christ? Where is the rapture? Where is all of that in terms of what the scripture teaches about the last events? They are, they are significantly absent from the description. But let's notice something further about the description. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The heavens there, I believe, based upon the context and the word that is used, would indicate the heavens immediately uh, above us, that which we can, can uh, see, uh, and that's which we realize as the heavens and the uh, earth, the elements will melt with fervent heat. That is everything that comprises the material earth, that is which the component parts, the elements of it, the elementary uh, elements. It's interesting, Burton Kaufman in his commentary uses this and says this is strong evidence as he views it that uh, Peter wrote by inspiration about things that science didn't really know about in terms of uh, the intricate elements, the atoms and so forth that comprise all matter and that Peter is describing uh, these things. That may very well be. Why would that surprise us since he's writing by inspiration? And since we know that John in 1 John 2.15 wrote that the earth is, uh, uh, or the world is passing away with its lust. And literally, literally, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy says that's exactly what is happening. The earth is, uh, or the world is passing away. It's winding down. The universe that has been wound like a giant clock 
is losing, uh, the energy is dissipating, there's less and less usable energy, that's the second law of thermodynamics, and John in 1 John 2, 15 through 17 seems to describe that very process. Why would that surprise us? In light of the fact that he wrote by inspiration. Thus, we should not be surprised if indeed the elements to which Peter makes reference here takes us all the way back to the atoms, every little part from which God, after he spoke that matter into, into existence, then compiled all of that in the beautiful form in which we find it and the harmonious form in which we find it today. All of that's going away. All of that is going to melt with fervent heat. Is it possible for the earth to burn up? Again, alluding to something I think Burton Kaufman had mentioned, that he had a science teacher back when he was a, a kid who made fun of him for being baptized because he said uh, the Bible teaches that the earth is going to be burned up and that is not a possibility. You've been baptized in light of something that uh, is false uh, on its face. That cannot happen. And he said his teacher even took a Bunsen burner and demonstrated that it wouldn't that the earth couldn't burn because he took some soil and applied a Bunsen burner and said, you see, that's not burning at all. Well, uh, science uh, definitely tells us now that yes, everything, everything is capable of melting with fervent heat. And indeed, that's what Peter long ago wrote about. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Think about that. The works that are in it. Now the works here, the elements would be that which comprises this, uh, this earth, this, uh, this world, the, uh, the component parts, but then the works would certainly include the works of man's hands. And there are some marvelous works of man's hands. They are the seven wonders of the ancient uh, world. There are all sorts of edifices that have been built that are impressive indeed and that awe uh, man as he observes what man has been able to do. It's all, it's all going to be burned up. Everything that man has made, as magnificent as it may be, is all going away as soon as the Lord determines to speak it out of existence. Now how he brings everything to the melting point he does not discuss in terms of the detail. But he'll have to speak it out of existence because matter changes form, doesn't it? Energy just changes form. All of it's going to melt into, into a formless uh, matter, we would, we would think, based upon what God has created. And only God can speak it out of existence because it was God who spoke it into existence. And so that is what's going to happen. But Here's the thing, it's all going to be burned up. Now, here's his point. Here's the point, and it should be a sobering one indeed for all who are capable of being sobered in their thinking. Therefore, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since all of this is going away and it is absolutely going away at some point, it's all going to be dissolved. How much sense, if we modernize the language, how much sense does it make for you to live with a really strong attachment to all of these things? 
How much sense does it make for you to give your priority to things that are going to be destroyed? No, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what does that strongly suggest? What does it clearly imply? What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, there are a lot of people who don't believe that this earth is going to be burned up. There are people who don't think the Lord is coming again. And because they don't believe that and they mock that and they make fun of that, their lives are reflective of their philosophy, which means they're going to live for the pleasures of today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and then like Rover, we're dead all over, and there's nothing more beyond that. They don't believe. They don't believe the certainty with which Peter speaks of the destruction, the dissolution of this earth. And because they don't, they don't live kind of lives that people who do believe in the dissolution of this earth will live. What manner of persons ought you to be? Interesting, that phrase, manner of persons, what manner of persons, literally is translated from a phrase that means of what country, of what country should you be? Of what country? Reminds us of Philippians 3.20 where Paul said our citizenship is where? Our citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's our homeland. If we're children of God, our homeland is, is, is heaven. This is not our home. And we often sing that song, this world is not my home. I'm, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Or are they? Or are they? Are we... Are we sending ahead the only treasures that we'll see again? And what are those treasures that we should be sending ahead? Holy conduct and godliness. Holy conduct and godliness. And that phrase, holy conduct and the word godliness, interestingly, are both in the plural. They're both plural. So literally, Peter is saying, holy conducts and godlinesses, godlinesses, it's plural, both of them are. In other words, godly activities, godlinesses, plural, living uh, in in accordance with doing godly things constantly. Your conducts, your activities are constantly holy activities. And when, you, when he says, ought you to be, it's continual. It's continuous. What should you continue to be like? What kind of person should you continue to be? One who's involved in holy conducts, plural. Holy activities. Godliness is, plural. That should characterize your life. Why? Because this world is not your home. So therefore, you cannot enjoy anything in this life, right? Well, of course you can. Of course we can. God created this earth for man to inhabit it. He created it with great beauty and harmony. 
and to be enjoyed within certain bounds, recognizing that as we enjoy it, we never lose sight of who made that enjoyment possible, the God of heaven. And we always look to the one who gave it to us in full gratitude and appreciation. But we also understand that even though God gave us this earth to inhabit and to enjoy and to appreciate, it's not our home. This is not our country. Of what country ought you to be? Peter literally asks here. And that he answers by saying holy conduct and godliness. And in our next study, as we get into verse 14 and following, we'll see a little bit more about that. But notice something else here. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Looking for, looking for. Should we be anticipating the second coming of Christ? Passage after passage in the New Testament make it abundantly clear that we should not dread the second coming, but in fact, we should anticipate it. Look for it uh, eagerly. Well, someone might be a young person, young person who, who's engaged to be married and looking forward to married life and rearing a family. Is that person supposed to be looking for the second coming of Christ? Or is he supposed to wait until he and his bride have... Uh, have uh, become husband and wife, they've reared their families, and then in later years, now it's time to look. No, every child of God, if you're 18 or 81, if you're a child of God, the admonition is anticipate and look for the second coming of Christ. But my fiancé and I never had an opportunity to get married. Well, that's okay. We'll be together if we're both Christians We'll be together not as husband and wife ultimately, but we'll be together as brothers and sisters, as the saints for all eternity in, a, in an atmosphere of bliss beyond comprehension. But we don't always think of it that way. We have a tendency to base our enjoyment and our anticipation of enjoyment upon what life has to offer. But it's what the next life has to offer that should command our attention and our anticipation. For the grace of God, Titus 2.11, that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for, there it is, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there are the passages that also clearly teach that we are to look for, uh, anticipate. And then he says, in hastening the coming of the day of God. Is there any way in which we can live to hasten the coming of the day of God? Well, certainly we should do all that we can to evangelize the world God wants the world evangelized. Perhaps the harder we work to evangelize the world, we're at least going to have a lot more people prepared to meet him when he comes, aren't we? Hastening, hastening the coming of the day of God. The expression may simply be that we are 
We're eager for it to come. We want it to come. We want it to be hastened or to come sooner rather than later. Because of which, that is the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Again, reiterating what he has stated in verse 10. And then, verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for what? New heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That word new is a word for new that literally indicates new in form or quality. New in form or quality. And new heavens and a new earth is used uh, in other uh, places. Revelation 21, uh, 1, John in the vision saw uh, the new heavens, the new earth. You go back to Isaiah 65, verse 17. Uh, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. What's he talking about here? New heavens and a new earth. He's simply talking about a new dwelling place for those who are righteous in this life. Now, what do we know the final abode of the righteous to be? Heaven. Therefore, new heavens and a new earth is simply a figurative expression referring to heaven where ultimately all the righteous will dwell. Don't you think that in the time in which we live today, with the declining morals and the increasing challenges that we face in our country and around the world for that matter, that when we read a verse like this, that it ought to provide for us an even greater incentive to be one day when time is no more in a place where there is nothing dwelling there except righteousness, nothing else. There is no sin, there is no persecution, there is no immorality. It is a place where only righteousness dwells, meaning only those will be there who are righteous and will never again be troubled by sin, its temptation, its presence in our world, and the troubling nature of that sin. Remember already in this same epistle, we've studied about righteous Lot who vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the unlawful deeds of those in Sodom. Well, we're living in a country that is becoming more and more like Sodom. And it should and does, I know, trouble those who are righteous. We hope and pray and we ought to work hard to turn things around. But if we can't, we can certainly gain solace and comfort in the fact that if we will remain faithful in that new heaven and new earth, heaven itself, we'll be where only righteousness dwells. Is that where you can anticipate being tonight? Not if you're not a child of God. Not if you're not a Christian. But you can have that anticipation. You can leave here tonight looking for the glorious appearing and the blessed hope of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Looking for it. Hastening the coming of that day because you're ready for it. But the only way to be ready for it is to obey the gospel of Christ.
by a belief that leads you to repent, confess Christ as the Savior, the Lord, the only begotten of the Father, and then to be buried with him, baptized into him for the forgiveness of sins. If you haven't done that, we plead with you to do that tonight. And if you have, but you've wandered away, send in a way to bring reproach upon the church and need to come home publicly to your first love because the sin itself is public, then we plead with you to do that for any private matter, as we so often say. We take that up with God through our mediator, Jesus Christ, privately. And thanks be to God, we have that mediator and we have that wonderful hope of one day seeing him face to face, seeing him as he is, and being with him for all eternity where nothing but righteousness dwells if you don't have that hope tonight we hope you'll do what's necessary to change it as we stand and sing to encourage you to do so